Welcome to the HSCT Warriors Podcast, bringing voice to the journeys of HSCT Warriors worldwide. I'm Dr. Jen Stansberry Koenig, or Zen Jen, and so grateful to share this story with you. As we continue to grow the HSCT Warrior community, illuminate the invisibilities of autoimmune disease, recognize the possibilities of a future free from disease progression, connect through our shared experiences, and advocate for an inclusive society. We're so glad you've joined us. So, Jarko, I'm curious then why it was important for you to participate in the podcast. I'm, I'm a little bit uh, uh, hesitant to, to always just go online and, and, you know, read what people write on Facebook, on meshes boards, on stuff like that. But I do have to admit that the Facebook groups for um, HSCT and uh, specifically the one that I look at most, which was the one for Russia, um, was enormously helpful to me to kind of get an idea of what's going on. And uh, people are so generous with their time and answering, you know, the same questions over and over again. You know, they always tell you, you know, use the search bar, but people keep asking the same questions and different people are chiming in. And sometimes the same people are chiming in, giving their answers. And I thought, uh, you know, it seems like most people or a lot of people give their time back to people who are, you know, prospective uh, patients who are looking for the, you know, to do the procedure. And so uh, I had a lot of people answer my questions and I thought, if, you know, if some someone will get some benefit out of listening to my story or the podcast, then um, it's something that I should do. So, um, and you, uh, you feel nice doing it too. Like, um, because so many people, like I said, answered my questions and uh, gave me their stories and their experiences. So you pay forward. Brilliant. I appreciate you sharing your story. So why don't you tell us more about what it was like in Russia? So, yeah, so we covered basically everything leading up to it. And, and I'm sure people can relate to that. It's a difficult decision. And especially people who are not uh, so sick, let's say, who are not so disabled, whose MS is not uh, very aggressive yet. You know, I, I talked uh, already a little bit about how the science that I read, and I think that that is the case, that the less disabled you are, the better it is. And so I reached that decision after a lot of deliberation. And uh, I talked about how, you know, it was delayed by COVID. Uh, and finally, I was able to go in April. So um, there's plenty of information about how to gear up for it and the visa process and all of that stuff. Um, it's stressful. Um, but getting that money together uh, is obviously going to be the biggest hurdle for a lot of people. People are fundraising for a year, two years plus. They're, you know, in a lot of debt. And so I think that's a huge, if not the biggest obstacle for a lot of people. Absolutely. Um, and maybe the second or maybe also this could be the first one is the mental uh, aspect of it. And, you know, I, I had one of my family members uh, wanted to come with me. First, it was my mom and she was adamant that she would come with me. Uh, she didn't want me to go alone. And, uh, you know, I didn't argue with her too much. I didn't think it was necessary, but you know, she wanted to accompany me and then that became impossible uh, due to COVID because they weren't letting any visitors in the hospital. So once the pandemic situation unfolded and then I got delayed and then I thought, you know, what's the point of bringing anybody when they can't enter the hospital and they're just going to be with me on an airplane? Like sure. it's just a huge cost. It's a huge waste of time and stress for the other person and risk for them as well to get exposed to COVID. So I shut that down once the pandemic happened and 
decided I would go myself, which was totally fine. Anybody who's listening to this was wondering, um, unless you, uh, you know, are very disabled and you know, you need a caretaker to come with you. Um, even then I would say, talk to, you know, the people at whichever, um, clinic or hospital you're going to attend because I know people in wheelchairs who went by themselves and they were fine because you get assistance in the airport. You get assistance, obviously, uh, uh, from the airport to the hospital, they send the drivers. So you really don't need anyone. And because it's so expensive and so far, like Moscow is far. And the only other place that I know that does it kind of commercially where you can just pay and go without too much trouble, you know, with the visas and stuff is Mexico. And for most people, those places are far, like unless you're in, you know, Canada or America and Mexico is close, but most Europeans flying to Moscow is not close for, you know, I flew from Toronto, Canada. So that's, uh, you know, quite a trip. And so um, it was totally fine being alone. And so you gear up. Uh, the big fear for me was COVID. Uh, you're already coming home with, you know, a recovering immune system. Sure. You're not quite at zero. And, and but, you know, the, the Dr. Fedorenko there in, in Moscow, he explained, like, you know, you're not totally, you know, uh, vulnerable. They wouldn't send you home in that condition, right? You stay in isolation until you're, you're ready to come out. But I think all of us are still scared. Uh, we don't really appreciate what our body, what, you know, what kind of condition our bodies are in coming home. So that was my big fear, but it was, you know, it was fine. One of the airplanes I was on was, was totally full and, and, uh, you know, you hear people coughing, like, like, you know, people cough for all sorts of reasons. They're smokers. They have something caught in their throat. They have right. a cold, but in the context of COVID, right. Anybody sneezes and you're giving them a dirty look. Right. Uh, but you know, it, it, it was fine. So yeah, so I went over there. I was alone. Um, the way that it basically went, uh, I'll try to do this succinctly and, and focus on the details that I thought was important that people might want to hear about in some detail. Thank you. Um, I, I flew to Moscow. Uh, I stopped off in Amsterdam because uh, it's a long flight. There was no direct flights from Toronto. Because of COVID, I paid for the first class ticket, uh, which was still quite expensive, but it would have been even more expensive, probably triple or quadruple the cost if it was during normal times. Uh, and I did that purely out of a, an abundance of caution. Looking back on it, it's probably not necessary, but within the pandemic, it's, it's you know, it's a big question mark. It, it seemed to me that air travel is safe based on the little research that I did, but um, that's what I did. Uh, and I got there. Well, let me tell you, I probably won't take a first class uh, seat anywhere else ever again because of how ridiculously expensive it is. But it's it's quite a nice experience. Sure. You know, I'm uh, I'm six foot five. I'm quite a tall guy, and airplanes have always been a nightmare for me. So it was nice to you know be able to lay down and have this kind of little you know your little cubicle there. So it was uh, it was kind of nice going on the way there. On the way back was 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 not really a nice trip, but you're excited to be home. But uh, anyway, so I, I I land in Russia, and their uh, their driver, the driver of the hospital, is waiting for me. He's got a sign and whatever, and then he takes you from the airport directly to the hospital. So this is something new uh, with COVID. And I imagine it's going to be the case for at least the next year or so that they're telling people, basically, um, we're going to pick you up. Don't go anywhere else in the city. You're going to go straight to the hospital. And then we're driving you straight back to the airport when you're done. So uh, 
people who had done uh, HSCT before COVID in Moscow, you know, they said, oh, you come a few days earlier. And there was a tour guide who would who would often show, show the patients around the city for like a day or two um, and stuff like that. But none of that was happening. So sure. the first time in Moscow, this, you know, wonderful international city, historic city. And uh, you don't get to see anything of it other than the airport and whatever right. you see on from the from the car ride to the to the hospital. So uh, I got to the hospital, and you know most people will know the general kind of uh, schedule that you're on throughout that month. It's about 28 plus days uh, while you're there, and um, the first few days or the first day rather, they test you for COVID. They don't do anything; they just stick you in a regular room. And, um, one of the doctors came just to greet me and just told, told me what was happening. And the next morning they got my COVID test, the PCR test was negative, And then they moved me into the first of two permanent hospital rooms that I would have. And the first days are kind of testing. They want to make sure that your body and all of your kind of blood work is in a uh, you know, healthy range so that there's no contraindications for the treatment, which is going to be obviously very aggressive, very hard on your body. And so they want to make sure all your organs and stuff are fine. And of course, they do uh, an MRI on your, whole, on your whole spine and brain to see what's going on. Uh, to get a picture of your MS, uh, of your nervous system, and stuff like that. So once once all that testing is done, uh, which is you know not scary at all, not painful. It's just a um, long day. It's a long day, and you're doing some kind of weird test. They do like a lung function test, and you have to blow in these you know patterns and stuff like that. But you know everyone's very nice. Uh, not everybody that you're going to encounter speaks perfect English, but certainly. Um, you're never going to feel like there's no one that you can ask questions. All of them have smartphones in Russia. And if you need to ask them something, you just do the translation. And the two main doctors that I dealt with, Dr. Fedorenko and his younger associate, he, they both spoke amazing English very, sure. very well. Like I had no, no issues at all. And even some of the nurses, you could always converse with them or they would find someone to converse with you. So once the tests are good and you're admitted, uh, then they, they take you to the, you know, the, the first of two permanent kind of hospital rooms that you'll be staying in. And you go through the process of basically preparing yourself for the chemotherapy. So uh, the major part of that is the stem cell collection, which I'm sure many people have talked about on the podcast. And actually, I found that to be the most uh, difficult part for some reason. Uh, the chemo comes afterwards and I think uh, me and probably a lot of other people have this picture of like when they when they start giving you chemotherapy, like you immediately feel tired and, and all your hair falls out right away. And then it's just you, you start feeling bad right away. But right. Uh, what really happens is that, uh, you know, I think the chemo regimen for me was uh, five days, four or five days. And you feel OK for the first few days. It takes, you know, some days, maybe even over a week for really all of those effects to settle into your body and for that like tiredness and all of those, you know, symptoms that come along from, from the chemo to, to actually take uh, hold in your body. So the first few days of chemo were fine for me. Before that, the stem cell collection drained me completely. I felt really tired, but nothing too crazy. Like this is what I tell people when they ask me, family, friends or whoever, about my experience is that there's nothing that's like acutely or specifically scary, painful, you know, fearful 
Um, you know, I've been to the hospital before and the first time when I had uh, my first MS attack, they, they gave me so many infusions and they just kept jabbing my arm with new, um, you know, lines. And so like my, my, my arm got quite painful, quite bruised because they gave me so many different lines. And the good thing in, in Russia is that they give you, um, a, a catheter line in your neck. And so it's a little bit annoying to have. So they give you two different ones. The first one they give you is, is quite thick. And that's the one that they use to, you know, give you, um, infusions, but also to extract the stem cells out of your blood. And the second one they give you is much smaller and it's just to kind of take your blood out and to, to give you infusions. And that one's comfortable and putting those in was a little bit uncomfortable, but it wasn't too bad. And so I would say that's the kind of most acutely painful part when they have to kind of give you a little nick on the neck and then they, you know, run the thing in there, the, the line, uh, but then it's fine. And you, 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 it very quickly becomes normal to you to have a tube sticking out of your neck. Sure. So and, would, you um, count, would you count that as your most memorable experience? No. So, you know, the whole time you're there, you kind of, you know what to expect if you've been reading online, you know, okay, they're going to do testing and then they're going to do the stem cell mobilization, right? They give you the drugs uh, to get your stem cells into your blood. Then they hook you up to the machine, which um, uh, transfuses your blood through a machine, takes the stem cells out of the blood and then routes the blood back into your machine. So that's the stem cell collection. That, that took two days for me. Uh, for some people, it takes one. Some people, it takes longer. And then they let you chill, then you do the chemo, and then you're in isolation. So that's the kind of general schedule of it. Uh, take your stem cells out, give you the chemotherapy, put your stem cells back, and then stick you in a room for about 10 to 14 days while your immune system recovers. Right. And there's a lot of many steps in between, but that's the major plot points of the story. And for me, the most significant moment and I to this day I don't know whether it's physical uh physiological mental some combination of all of those but after they reinfuse your your stem cells into your body so so after they give you chemo for the four or five days you get a day off and then they come they put you into the isolation room and that's the room that you stay in for the rest of your stay and then they come in and they have your stem cells, which have been frozen from, you know, five days beforehand. And they saw them out and then they basically just uh, reinfuse them into your body in, through your neckline. And so that's a, a bit of a procedure, you know, and you have like a little ceremony and, and um, the doctors are there and, and uh, you know, one of the main, I don't know if she's a surgical nurse or whoever, she kind of handles that part of it. And they're all there and they just kind of monitor you while the stem cells are being put back in. And in terms of the procedure itself, it, it kind of feels like um, you've got, uh, you get this kind of tomato pasty taste in your mouth uh, as they're kind of, um, you know, running it back into your body through mm. this neckline. Yeah. And your heart starts racing and um, it, it's not the most comfortable feeling, but it's nothing too crazy. And it's over and about. I would say 15 or 20 minutes for me, it was, I didn't have any like issues. And after I was done, they just said, yeah, you can rest and everything. And they just kind of watched me for a few minutes and then they all left. And I just, I don't know. I felt like a, an enormous weight had lifted off of my shoulders and I just broke down crying. Uh, maybe like I've never cried in my life. And uh, I don't know. I'm, I don't know why, but I'm, I'm someone who doesn't usually cry. Um, that's, I just don't process 
things in that way. Usually, I mean, obviously something really sad happens if somebody dies. Um, but for most of the things I, I don't cry. And, and so I remember thinking like, Oh, when is the last time that I cried? Sure. You know, and I'm just sitting here like, uh, tears are streaming down my face and all this stuff. And I feel this enormous, um, release. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I recorded a little video on my phone of what I was feeling at that moment. I still have it and I haven't, <laughs> I haven't had the guts to watch it again because it was, you know, it was a very powerful moment. And, uh, and I wanted to kind of capture whatever I was feeling then because I was, I was recording a little bit each day. Uh, and I'm thinking about maybe stringing that together. I, I didn't do it at the end. I got very tired towards the end and I didn't have the energy and now I regret that. To kind of put together a little you will not documentary, but uh, I recorded uh, that, and it was just um, yeah, like I think the the stress of of the whole trip and planning it and having it delayed, and you finally get there, and then that was like the final kind of step in the whole procedure to give you your stem cells back, and then. You know, I think what a lot of us don't realize about the procedure is that uh, the stem cells are not really the treatment, right? They're just to help you recover a little bit faster. And if we didn't have the stem cells, you would probably just be in isolation longer. That's right. my understanding. Yes. I'm not a doctor, but they, they just kind of help you along faster. So after that, there's nothing major that they're doing to you. You're just kind of sitting around in that room. You get your you get your infusions a few times a day and they monitor you and that's it. And it's just up to your body to recover. And so that moment feels like cresting the hill. Like you get to the top of the hill and then now it's, it's slowly, you know, now you're not climbing anymore. Now you're on the way down Yeah. from this kind of journey. And so there's probably a symbolic thing there, but also a physical thing. I think my body was, it felt like something physical happened. Right. And yeah, that was, and then, you know, in, in Russia, at least, uh, I don't know how it works in, in the other places they're doing it, but uh, Dr. Fedorenko will come in <clears throat> and before they used to do, I guess, a ceremony from what I gathered on, uh, from people on Facebook, but now because of COVID, they discourage patients from kind of talking and congregating sure. and stuff. Um, but he comes in and he, he has a nice one-on-one -on -one chat with you and he gives you this little pin basically. And it's like, you know, a little, uh, you know, new life pin. It has um, some, some flower or some, some plant on it that signifies like new life. And he says, you know, this is like the first, you know, your stem cell birthday, they call it. And, you know, everybody knows this date. Um, and he says, you know, uh, and he said something to me really kind of poignant, um, which is, he said, you know, this procedure works, you know, to this such and such percent. And he says, you know, you're young, you're strong, you tolerated everything quite well. Um, so I believe very, very strongly that you're, you're in remission and, and, and I've removed, you know, you know, in quotation marks, 95% of your MS, something along those lines. And he says the remaining 5% is in here. And then he pointed, you know, at my head and you said, you know, that part is up to you. And I thought about that the rest of the day and how much, uh, of dealing with MS is like dealing with your own head. Sure. And managing your mental state and uh, kind of how you conceptualize the whole thing in your head. And, you know, I think we, we definitely, in a lot of cases, make ourselves suffer a lot more than is necessary. And that has really nothing to do with how disabled you are and, and how much the disease has limited you. 
but it's completely up to how you choose to interpret that because, you know, chances are, you know, we've all met someone with a disability with some difficulty in life. If it's not a disability, it's, you know, you know, the loss of a partner at a young age and they have to raise the kids alone or, you know, financial ruin. And now they have to build their lives back up from zero again. And we, we probably all know someone who's gone through something really, really difficult like that, but somehow managed to keep their like positive spirit. Somehow wasn't let that circumstance, that event completely shaped like a, a negative interpretation of their lives. And so, um, when he said, you know, you have to get rid of the last 5% of your head. And, and basically I interpreted that as like, you have to stop thinking of yourself as a sick person. Mm. And so much of what I read online before I came was specifically about, you know, Dr. Federenko's advice and kind of, uh, the post HSCT recovery period is that your mentality and, and, you know, uh, as, as he put it in his very simple and very, uh, kind of Spartan, a Russian way, good mood. That's all he called it, good mood, right? That covers everything, right? That covers your mentality, your kind of emotional regulation, your kind of, you know, he just called it good mood. So he said, keep your brain healthy, keep yourself happy, you know, think positively uh, is, a, is a very, very important part of, of the recovery. It's not just, you know, we're going to zap you with this chemo and you're going to be all right, but you're going to go home and, and, and get, get down again because, because, the recovery is difficult or, you know, whatever else. And so I really took that to heart and made that kind of the most important thing to follow because, you know, I know that the diet won't always be perfect. Uh, there'll be days where I don't feel like exercising or I can't exercise, but my mind, I kind of will always have a power to steer in a positive way. And, um, and I think that that has been one of the biggest changes after coming home from the treatment is a renewed kind of focus on uh, on the mentality aspect of it. And I think that really is the most important part. That's beautiful. And I think your dog agrees. <laughs> <laughs> this always happens. Oh, that's okay. And that's I'm like, okay. He, you're saying something so beautiful right now. And there's my dog barking. Up that's okay. He's moved. He's moved by all the stories. Um, so, so yeah, in terms of, you know, the whole, the whole process, I can say generally, you very slowly start to feel the effects of, of, of all that treatment, the chemotherapy, the steroids, the God knows whatever else they're giving you. And I say God knows, not because they're giving you mystery stuff. It's, it's right. very well documented and he'll explain to you everything that he gives you. I just don't remember what it all is, sure. but you know, you get certain drugs for the stem cells, you get certain drugs, you know, to, to make sure that the, the procedure goes well, you have steroids, you have all of this stuff. And so you're not like one day good and the next day you feel awful, but it's just a slow kind of, I would say a decline in how you feel. You certainly feel worse. And I, I took pictures of myself and I, I recorded videos from my friends and family of kind of what's happening. Oh, today we did this, you know, today, I'm, you know, whatever. And, and I look back at some of those videos, and, you know, you, your skin turns quite pale, you, you lose the color, you know, in your skin, it dries out, all that stuff with chemo, which is, you know, to be expected. But Looking back, it, it's even almost more than I thought it was because I didn't feel quite, I, I suppose I thought I would feel like awful the whole time, but it, it wasn't quite like that. Right. Yeah. It's really afterwards that that is the struggle, right? It's, it's maybe the day or two before you leave, you start to really feel the effects of the chemo setting in, your, your hair is really starting to fall off if it's not you know entirely gone yet. And, um, and then you get home after all that stress and then, you know, the work begins 
of readjusting to life and all of the kind of limitations that you have in terms of what you can eat and keeping your you know house clean and you can't leave and uh, whatever else. At least I you know I couldn't leave for 14 days when I returned because of uh, quarantine rules. And so uh, you know coming home was its own uh, uh, event and, and and change and and you know the enormous relief that you feel when you come. <laughs> When you land in your when your own airport and you pass all the security and then you know your loved one is waiting for you uh, you know at the gate or outside or wherever they are and you're like okay I'm home no more you know no more sure. doctors no more well, how did isolation room and all of that right how did you do in isolation and how did they do being so far from you during everything so I actually have a funny story from isolation so. Um, they let you bring in. So basically once, once you're in the isolation room, I think the second or third day, they take all your stuff out. You, they take out away all your clothes, your luggage, and kind of, you're allowed to keep like food, coffee, uh, your electronics, like so you have your computer and your phone. And then, uh, you know, people will probably know this, but um, they give you clothes every day. You're not allowed to brush your teeth or shower you get like this kind of alcohol based solution and you just basically wipe yourself down with this solution and it just kind of evaporates. Uh, you get clean towels uh, every day or like one use and you, um, you get like a mouthwash and that's it. You don't get to brush your teeth or anything. You wear the kind of white hospital garments. And, um, I, I always joked with, with everybody that I was, you know, video calling and stuff that, uh, uh, I was in the loony bin because, you know, you're in, you're sure. in the isolation room. They don't let you out and you got the white clothes on. Right. And so it was just kind of a funny little joke. And, and, uh, you know, I think I was in isolation for 12 days. It's a long 12 days to, to not be able to go walk more than like, you know, three or four meters in a, you know, Around in, your in room. A line. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that was the most difficult part. I mean, kind of being confined and not being able to, you know, go out of the hospital or whatever wasn't that bad for me, but just not being able to walk for more than a, a few meters in a line and, and stuff like that was difficult. And you can't have to, you know, uh, there's no fresh air. It's all filtered air. You have to, windows are closed. At least my room had windows and I had a nice view. And so that helped a lot. But what I did during isolation was I had my laptop and I'm a, I'm a hobby DJ. So I, I don't really play anywhere, but uh, I do it for fun. And when the pandemic started, I found um, how to stream uh, my music online. So I would be, you know, playing a set and I would just turn on my webcam and, and you know, I would send a link to friends and, and some of my family who liked, you know, dance music. And then I would play music for a few hours. It was nice. just like a fun little thing. And so when I got to, to Russia, when I got to Moscow in the hospital, uh, I got a SIM card for my phone and the internet was quite strong. And so I was able to, you know, connect my laptop to the cell phone internet. And I thought, Hey, why don't I stream some music from my isolation room? So I, th I would wake up quite early in, in Moscow every morning, uh, probably around like four thirty their time. And that would be about evening time here, I think 10 or 11 or so basically when, you know, people are maybe uh, having a glass of wine, some of my friends, or they're gearing up to go out or whatever, but most of the time people would be awake. And so um, I would uh, play some music. I would basically DJ on my laptop and I would have the web camera on and they would see me with like, you know, sitting at my little desk in my room with, with my catheter sticking out of my neck and I'd right. be, you know, play, play music for them streaming. And uh so many people, and I would just send a link to, you know, whoever was interested. I would sometimes 
uh, I, I didn't post it to Instagram. Uh, I, I didn't want, you know, you have all sorts of people on Instagram that you're not close with. It was a kind of personal uh, a thing, but uh, I did send it to, you know, my friends and, and, and my family and they got such a kick out of it. And I think it helped them to see that I was still in a good spirit and I was still doing what I love, which is, you know, playing music, DJing and whatever, like finding my little way of staying normal in a, in a really kind of, uh, let's say, abnormal situation or whatever. Sure. And, and how about so, your mom? Uh, how did she do? Well, I'm sure she didn't do well. And, uh, you know, my, my parents, uh, in, in my situation, you know, my mom is, she's a, a, a lab tech in a hospital. So she has a biology background and she knows, you know, she has some education about medicine and she reads a lot about it. And so when I got diagnosed, she sunk into all the research and everything. And, and that was her way of kind of arming herself with knowledge to kind of figure out, okay, what's the best thing that we can do. And I think that also helped her a lot in, in uh, feeling like she's participating and not just this like helpless observer in the, uh, you know, in, in this difficult situation, like, you know, sure. as difficult as it was for me, I think that it was way more difficult for them. Like, I don't have a, a kid yet, you know, but I can imagine that if my kid is diagnosed with anything, uh, you know, somewhat serious, you you just feel awful because you, there's, there's not much you can do. But what you can do is, is you know, what my god mom did, which was, you know, to, to try to get yourself educated, try to see what the best option is, and then go that route. You know, my dad is not inclined in the way to read, you know, journals and to research all that stuff. And so I think it was more difficult for him because he just kind of had to sit back and deal with the fear. And he, Trust. Uh, you know, he wouldn't let it show too often. But once in a while, he would, you know, I could I could see how scared he was. And he was very scared of me going to Russia because, uh, you know, there's chemotherapy and all of this stuff. And he was really unsure whether it was the right decision and. Um, he just said, you know, you guys are, are reading about this. I'm not. So you guys know, but you know, he had a really difficult time and I'm sure obviously my mom did too, but I think it helped her to have something to do and to kind of, um, research and know about it. And, and I found that for myself as well. Like I, I talked earlier about, I was too scared at the beginning when I was diagnosed to, re- to read about the disease and, and, and kind of what happens and what can happen and how does it work? And what's the mechanisms and what's actually happening in my body. But, but once you get over that, once you come to some level of acceptance with it and, and you start reading about it, it becomes less scary. Certainly you read, you know, this many people end up severely disabled and that's always gives you pause. But I felt like for me, at least, reading about what's happening in your body, what are the options, how do the drugs work, how does HSCP work, that knowledge kind of armed me in a way and, and disarmed the disease of its scariness because, you know, we're all we're very scared of the unknown, right? When there's a kind of black cloud of, of where our knowledge is or our understanding, it's very scary because that black cloud can contain anything. But once we kind of understand and read and kind of educate ourselves, okay, okay this is the landscape of this, this issue that I'm dealing with. Knowledge is power. Uh, knowledge is definitely power. And so, you know, I'll never really know how they did through that month. I'm sure it was very, very difficult for them. But, uh, you know, uh, the thing is that my treatment went very smoothly over there. You know, it's difficult, but it went smoothly. There was no complications. And so each day that I was able to update them, they're like, everything's fine. You know, you know, everything's going smoothly as planned, as best as can be hoped for given the aggressive nature of the treatment. And I think, you know, that probably 
put them at ease, but you know, it was probably a longer month for them than it was for me. You know, for me, it kind of, it zipped along and, you know, in good time, the isolation was maybe where it slowed down, but, um, I'm sure like for many people or for most people that, that it's, it's, you know, many ways harder for the people around you than for you, because when you're in it, you feel like, okay, I can do something. You know, I was doing push-ups in the isolation room. I was doing some stretches. I was, you know, trying to meditate. I was trying to play some music, keep myself occupied, talk to people, keep my brain engaged and, and all that stuff. Like kind of, okay, we're going to put myself in the best possible mindset and everything to, to get out of this isolation room in decent condition and everybody else is just kind of sitting around waiting for you to come home. So, um, yeah. So do you have any specific advice, um, to help with thinking about going to Russia that you might offer as they maybe prepare for HSCT or even recovering from like, how's recovery going for you? Yeah, so so I got back May twenty third of twenty twenty one. Today's date is what is it? October twenty seventh. So one thing that I keep realizing is is that you don't really know where your feeling is in terms of recovery. You think that you feel normal, and then another month passes, and you feel even better, and then. Conversely, you will have times when you slip back down, right? They call this the recovery roller coaster, mm-hmm. where your kind of physical and mental condition is going up and down and up and down. And the hope is that the general kind of trajectory, like that line of best fit, is 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 trending upwards. And so, even if you're going up and down and up and down, generally you end up higher than where you were, you know, some months beforehand. And you know, from what I read from people online, they're saying, "Hey, I'm you know, uh, such and such years." post-transplant, three years, four years, two and a half years, I still see improvements. And so you start to realize like the extent to which your body needs time to heal from all of this stuff. Um, my understanding is, is, is and what, what I've been told by, by doctors, and obviously I'm not a doctor, so whatever scientific stuff that I'm, um, I'm spewing out here, people will have to confirm with their own, you know, research and, and discussions with their medical professionals. But, um, what I'm realizing is, or what I've been told rather, is that once uh, in the in the scope of HSCT, right, they almost totally eliminate your immune cells, and the new ones that regenerate are not, you know, attacking your body. And so now this kind of state of inflammation that's been going on in your body is now gone. And so your body's finally in a state where some repair can happen. And, and it, it's thought that, you know, people who have disabilities and who recover or who have lost some ability of their body or have some symptoms that then disappear afterwards. The reason is that the body can finally repair to whatever extent it's going to repair because that, that state of inflammation that's kind of constant with the disease is now gone. And so that's why people who the theory behind why it's better to go earlier is because, well, you haven't had this damage. And so there's not so much to repair, right? Your body hasn't been being racked by this inflammation for years and years and years. And therefore you put a stop to it at an earlier time and your body is able to uh, repair easier, has less to repair. And, and, and the rate of repair for kind of uh, your nervous system is quite slow. I, I read some stats at some point that like your, your nerves regrow at some amount of millimeters per year. Yeah. Very right? slow. So they grow back quite slow and same thing with the myelin sheath like the body has some ability to regenerate the myelin sheath but it's very slow and 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 if the the wound if the lesion is quite old 
um, then it's scarred over and, it, and it's not going to repair with the body's natural processes to the full extent. And so in terms of my recovery, um, up and down like everybody else, when I got back, um, it's weird. You feel kind of better the first week or two that you're back and then you feel worse. And I don't know if that's because um, of the kind of infusions that they've been giving you. And then, and then finally kind of all of that stuff wears away. And that's kind of what it felt like to me, like, you know, whether it was the steroids or I don't know what, um, uh, all these stimulating factors that they give you in these infusions to keep your kind of levels up and your recovery up. And then suddenly you're home alone and all you've got is like your food and maybe a few supplements right. that, that the doctor recommends. And now your body is just like, okay, now it's you know, recovery mode. And so today I feel good. Uh, you know, I'm waking up earlier. I am napping, not, uh, every day. Prior to HSCT, I would sleep every single day during the, during the day, and I would go into very deep sleeps and and wake up feeling like like a zombie. And it didn't matter when I woke up, you know, sleep cycles this that. It didn't matter. I would go deep and wake up like 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 I've got a ton of gravel, like you know. I need to me. sleep again. Yeah. Yeah, and and I was sleeping fine prior to HSCT. Um, in terms of like MS and stuff, sometimes I would have muscle soreness from other reasons. Um, but, but I was sleeping fine and, and a lot, but, um, now I feel like, uh, you know, seven hours, eight hours, like normal amounts, I think for, for an adult to feel sufficiently rested. And I do feel sufficiently rested. I wake up at 6am every morning. I take my dog out. Um, you know, I, like I, uh, I don't know if I, I mentioned, uh, before, but you know, I'm trying to pick up a few courses just to keep my brain active. And that's something I haven't done in, in, in over two years because, that that insidious cloud a fog that a lot of people deal with with this with this disease which is my biggest problem that that fatigue that like the, just the thought of doing something like intellectually mentally demanding was 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 like impossible and so it felt, it felt like i haven't used my brain in over two years you know that doesn't mean you can't do the you know normal activities of life you you can still have conversations with people. And I still did some kind of personal journal writing and this and that, but, but to do something kind of mentally challenging, right. I, I was a lawyer before I had to go off work and, 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 I, and I thought often like, what if, what if, what if I had to go back to work tomorrow? How would I do keeping track of my schedule, going to court, you know, writing these documents, analyzing things, you know, researching, like no chance. I couldn't imagine it. Now I can imagine. Hmm. Certainly I'm not ready right now but I can imagine it. And, and, and it feels like, you know, I'm starting to come back to where I was, which was, you know, someone with mental energy, with mental capacity, with, you know, all of these things. But I had a period of frustration definitely at about two and a half, three months post, or, you know, maybe six, six, seven weeks ago where I just, I hit a down part. I was tired. I stopped working out. I stopped doing my physical rehab and, I, you know, let my diet suffer and I just thought, oh, like I'm starting to feel the same way that I did, you know, before with that tiredness, that lethargy, that, you know, inability to, to kind of get up and get on with things. And, you know, and, and it got, re it was really scary. And, you know, we all, all of us patients probably think at one point, like, what if it didn't work? What if it didn't work? What if it's back? Right. And, and that comes back to, to that 5% that Dr. Federico told me, it's like, you got to get rid of that. You have to stop thinking of yourself that way. And, and, um, and that was also an important thing for me to, to feel, which is that fear of it coming back and how do I handle that fear and how do I, 
decide that the next time when I feel it creeping in, how am I going to respond? You know, and, and the answer I think for me was just patience. It's such a hard thing to do to wait. Like, you know, so many people who are dealing with this disease have felt like they're just waiting, waiting, waiting. Life is passing them by and then they're waiting to get this treatment and to get the treatment and they're waiting to recover and, you know, and if you wait until some, if you're waiting for some point at which you're going to feel like Superman or Superwoman and that all of your symptoms are going to be gone and then you're going to enjoy life, mm-hmm. you will never get there. Right. You will never, you will never reach that point. And, and that's a kind of more, I think, general life thing. And I don't want to get preachy with people or guru with people uh, listening to this, but um, it, you know, if you go through, I think that's a pattern that we all have at some point, or maybe we still have, which is, oh, I'll be happy when X occurs, mm-hmm. when I get that job, when I have some money, when I get married, when I have children, right? We have some goal and, and we tell ourselves, I won't be happy until this happens. And, and, and I think that's a wrong approach, especially in the context of something that's so hard to define as when I'm recovered from HSCT or, you know, you know, when my MS is feeling better or whatever. Or like, uncertain. Yeah. You, only, you, you don't know how you're going to feel. You know, I don't even know what, what normal is anymore because I've, I've, I've been, I've changed it from, you know, uh, um, you don't tell yourself this explicitly, but it becomes the way that you operate that, well, I, I can't really feel happy and good about my day and excited about waking up in the morning and excited about life until my MS symptoms get better, until the brain fog is gone, until my energy levels are back up. Right. And that's the way that I was living for a long time. Sure. When, when really it, it, there's a lot of life to live, there's a lot of things that you can do, even when you're dead tired all the time, even when, you know, you still have family, you still have friends around, you can still do your hobbies to whatever extent you can do them. Like there's always a space in which you can find something to do and find something to enjoy your day with. And so when I change my thinking to what can I do today that's going to make me have a good day, that's going to push the needle forward just a little bit. And if I wake up dead tired the way to move the needle is, okay, I don't have the gusto and the kind of mental fortitude to, sometimes you have the mental fortitude to overcome that tiredness. Say, I'm going to get on the bike anyway. I'm going to go out and take a jog, even though I'm dead tired. And then maybe you'll be completely wiped after that. But sometimes you have the power to push through. But when you don't, what do you do? Well, I tell myself, I'm going to get down on the floor. I'll do some yoga stretches. Sometimes it's 10 minutes. That's just 10 minutes of me just stretching out, loosening up my hips, getting on the floor, you know, uh, loosening up some of the tight muscles in my back, doing that two minute little meditation that, that, you know, the yoga video will have me do at the beginning or the end. And that's it. And let me tell you, that makes a difference. If I don't feel like doing anything intellectually stimulating, okay, I'll write in my journal or I'll, I'll try to read a book that I enjoy. I try to go for a walk. I try to really like not take the day for granted that I have and move the needle forward a little bit because on a very difficult day, just keeping your mentality intact, that might be the, the success and not letting yourself go down the negative spiral. Sure. Because guess what? If you don't let yourself go down the negative spiral today, suddenly tomorrow, you know what? You're feeling better. You have your energy back. You're able to work out. And if you had let yourself get negative yesterday, today, you wouldn't be feeling like this, ready to go and, and ready to have, you know, maybe a better day than yesterday. And when I changed my thinking to that kind of thing of like, how can I just make each day the best that it can be? And not every day is going to be a 10 out of 10 but I can maybe change a one out of 10 to a, to a three or a four out of 10 day. And that way things opened up to me and, and an amazing thing happens where suddenly you, you can do more the brain and the mind. And it's so connected to your body that when you're in a good mood, you have energy for everything. 
And so or you have more energy, I should rather say. Sure. And so it, 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 you, you ask, you know, what's your advice to people? I really don't want to come off as, as kind of guruing or I know best because I'm saying all of this and I still have trouble putting it into practice. It's not to say that I've perfected this way of thinking and that I don't have days where I just shut down, I eat crappy food, I don't move, I don't do anything, and I just sit in front of the TV and I kind of have a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, uh, I feel sorry for myself a little bit and whatever. I have that as well. Yeah, we're and I go human. Through periods and everyone does. Absolutely. And it's just about trying to remind yourself all the time that you know what the right thing is to do. You know that, you know, if, if I'm in a bad pattern, I know that this is a bad pattern. Let me remind myself. Let me try my, to improve it how much ever I can. And then once the day is over, to let it go and to not dwell on it. And um, that, I think, has been the most important thing that I've taken away from the, the recovery period and on the larger question of like, you know, uh, what happens if your MS comes back after the treatment? And I've made peace with the fact that, you know what, I told myself I probably will come back. I don't know if that's true. Dr. Federenko told me, I think you won't have a problem with MS for the rest of your life if you live a healthy lifestyle. If you don't, you know, if they're drinking and smoking and doing all this stuff, if you, if you live an active lifestyle, if you keep yourself in a good mental state, as you said, I don't think you'll have a problem. And the way I approached it was, if I hold on to that hope and it happens, then it's going to shatter my world. And so the way that I'm going to live is, what's going to happen is what's going to happen. I think, will it come back? Probably, but I can't control it. And if it doesn't, great. And I'm not going to live my life hanging, hanging on that question of whether my MS is going to come back, how, how you know, strong is it going to come back, how weak you know, it doesn't do anything for me. And, um, and I don't think of myself sick any longer. Um, when people ask me, I don't know whether to say I have MS, I had MS, I was diagnosed with MS, uh, and not because I don't have a, I'm unclear about, you know, what's happening with myself and my relationship to these ideas. You know, what, what do you actually tell people? Sure. I was diagnosed with it. Now it might be gone, but it might come back, you know, um, I think hinging on those kind of eventualities is, is for me an unproductive way to think about everything because then if it comes back, then what is my life ruined? Is there no enjoyment to be had? Can I not live still a full life? If I still have some symptoms, there's millions of MS patients all around the world who did HSTT, who had great recoveries, but still who have symptoms. And I still have symptoms too. Mine aren't gone. Probably some of them will never be gone, but that's just part of, you know, what my body does now. And, you know, I don't think of it as like each time I feel that tingling, they're like, oh, I'm sick. That's just like, you know, you got a bum ankle. And every time you play basketball, it stiffens up. And after, you know, after years of that, you don't even feel it anymore. It just becomes a part of your thing. So you just get on with it. This and so that's powerful the, mindset. I think that's the only way to do it. If you, if you get bogged down in negativity, if you get bogged down in what you can't do, if you get bogged down in how difficult it all is, um, is then suddenly the waves are going to start come crashing down on you. They're going to feel, you know, unmovable. They're going to feel like overbearing and, 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 you know, it, it doesn't do you any good. I sure. Think. So is this obviously mind? you're going to have, I, I was just going to say, obviously you're going to have days where you break down where you cry. That's I'm not telling people to, you know, avoid their emotions. Uh, uh, what I found is that it's just keeping them in a context. You know, uh, that's what I found has been the, the biggest help for me and not ignoring them either, because there's been days where I, you know, I didn't want to let myself cry uh, or, or let myself kind of admit that, it, that it's been really hard. And that doesn't help either. Um, but letting myself cry, letting myself 
feel down and then picking myself back up. That's, that's the important part and, and getting on with the business of life, which is, you know, what am I going to do today? How can I make it better? And, you know, all the same stuff that I've been saying. So, right. Brilliant. So yeah, that's been my approach. So was this an approach you had before HSCT or do you think it's a superpower that you gained from HSCT? You know, I think, I think if I had really been able to, to use this kind of mindset mindset prior to HSCT, um, I wouldn't have hinged so much of my hopes on it. And I think that was a kind of uh, mistaken way to go about things. So, so um, once I had decided to go and then I had a date and then that date got delayed and then there was COVID, um, there was such long stretches there where because I couldn't go and I was waiting to go, I had, I had in a way mentally said, Oh, well, I, I, I can't like, enjoy my life until I have this over with because it's kind of hanging over my head and, and things won't be good in my life until I go and get treated and then things will be good. And that was the wrong way to think about things. And so, um, I don't think I had that mindset. I, I knew how important the positive mindset was, but I just wasn't at the place where I could appreciate that message and kind of put it into practice. And then, um, once I had the procedure done. And so, okay, that, that part of my participation, like, okay, I took the steps to go and, and uh, whatever, and did all of the kind of hurdles to get it done. And I came back. Now there's no more, nothing to do, right? There's no treatment to do. Now I'm just in a recovery mode. So now it's just me, you know, me, myself and Irene, right? Like you, right. you, you don't have any drugs to take. There's, there's nothing. It's just, how am I going to live the rest of my life right now? Am I going to be fearful that it's going to come back? Am I going to let negativity? Am I going to let fear? Am I going to obsess about my symptoms? Am I going to obsess about how I feel every single day and that it's not just going up linearly in terms of my recovery, right? And, and, and Or am I going to have a more holistic view of what's happening to me and simply try to accept those things that are out of my control, what's within my control, try to do the best thing and and just move forward. And so it's certainly something that I... Uh, gained was only able to appreciate after, after, after having done it. Uh, but I think that anybody, if they're listening to this and they haven't had it done, if, if they can really try to commit themselves to that kind of thinking of not focusing on the symptoms, focusing on the illness, but rather their, their own interpretation of what's happening to them and that they don't have to be so angry. They don't have to be so frustrated. They or can wait, they can have a different, Exactly. And they don't have to, to, to wait until they get HCT to start putting that positive mindset in because what Dr. Fedorenko says applies to everybody, regardless of whether or not they've had HCT. Like so many MS patients know you get stressed out when your symptoms go, go haywire. And I realized how much stress has like a physiological impact. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they tell us, the scientists, the doctors, they tell us that like stress kills, stress causes, you know, heart disease and all this stuff. But once your nervous system is, is, is damaged from, from MS and, and you can actually feel your stress, like my hands start tingling when I get stressed out or, you know, you have, you get more tired and, and it's like a kind of a visceral reaction. Like now your, 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 your barometer for stress is like very, um, um, what's the word? Like very apparent and sensitive, you feel it physically. It's very, it's very, it's very sensitive and you can feel it. Like, you know, if I would have like two beers, suddenly my, my hands start buzzing. It's like, okay. I see that this is actually, you know, having an effect on my nervous system. It's probably having an effect on everyone's nervous system who also has two germs, but they don't feel it yet. They only feel it when they start, you know, getting a little buzzed. 
And so, um, so yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's, I think it's a good way for, for everyone to, to try to conceptualize the whole thing of, of their illness and, and kind of how their life is going. And, and I think it's a very powerful tool that, that every morning I try to remind myself to use and that I'm still struggling with. Um, but it seems to me the, the thing that has made the biggest impacts in my recovery. Brilliant. So what about something you're grateful for about your experience with HSCT that has maybe gone unspoken? Um, what am I most grateful for? I'm grateful that, that I don't have to take anything afterwards, that I haven't had any, you know, that you don't have to take any medication and that afterwards it's really just about you letting your body rebuild its systems, recover from the damage from chemo, and then hopefully just staying in remission. I know that some people do have reactivations afterwards and they're put on um, uh, some, some, you know, limited course of further drugs, to try to put them back into remission. And that's something that Dr. Federenko talked to me about. I said, you know, what if it doesn't work in a month or six months later, there's, you know, no findings. He said, well, we have ways to put you back into remission that, that seem to work. But um, the fact that right now I'm not on any medication, that really it's just about, you know, what exercise am I going to do today? What kind of good food am I going to put in my body? What kind of things am I going to do for my brain to stimulate it? That, really makes the whole process feel lighter, right? The difficult part is you go to the hospital for a month and you deal with, you know, difficulty of that and you come home, then you're in this recovery phase, but there's not, you know, there's not an additional factor of like you're on an immunosuppressant and then, you know, you're dealing with all the side effects of that. And, um, you know, another thing I can say I'm grateful for is, is the wealth of information that's out there and that, you know, I, I, I try to practice gratitude every morning when I'm kind of thinking about my day and, and, and reflecting whether it's in the morning. You know, if this was 10 years ago, there wasn't such a, a, an opportunity for people to get HSCT done. Right. It, it, it wasn't as widespread. I think Dr. Federenko only started doing it 10 years ago, some commercially or somewhat commercially. It, it had been in trials and being done. They've been studied for a while everywhere, but it's only in the last decade that, that it's kind of more and more available. And in many countries, it's, it's still not available, right? I think in, in America, you probably know these details much better than I do. Um, in America, they're still only doing trials. You have to apply and be accepted, right? You can't just go somewhere and get it done. Right. Like I said, in Canada, there's, there's the one doctor in Ottawa who does it. You have to be referred and you have to meet the stringent requirements of being, you know, disabled and having failed, uh, you know, other pharma therapies. Um, some countries in Western Europe do do it, but only for their citizens. Like I think you can get it done in Switzerland. So like the possibilities today to get HACT are much wider than they were in the past. And there's a body of kind of medical literature, um, that if you're so inclined, you can access and that you can see. And, and that helped me make my decision enormously that when I read, no, I, I said this already, but I think it's enormously important that I read for myself that various studies from Europe, from South America, from North America, from different institutions and universities and hospitals and, you know, uh, whatever else are all coming to the same conclusion that of, 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 of the high level of efficacy and, and the kind of mechanism um, and, and that that's accessible and that you live in the internet age where you can also connect with other people. And uh, again, I'm weary of the, you know, Facebook MD and, and hanging on too much of what people say online, whether it's positive or negative. Like if you go on the HSCT Russia Facebook page, 
you mostly get people's positive reactions. Now that could be because most of the outcomes are positive, but it also could be because positive people are more likely to stick around and tell their story than they, and then people who have, you know, negative experiences. And, and so I, I kept that in mind as, yeah. And I, and I think it's important for people to realize that, that you can't go by what's being said online one way or the other, right? If you're hearing, if you're reading a lot of negativity or if you're reading a lot of positivity, you're not necessarily getting the a representative right. kind of sample. So, so it's good to read everything that you can and, and kind of get a wide picture of, of kind of maybe the factual parts, whatever factual parts exist, and, and then to make your decision. And so alongside HCT, you know, there's a kind of anti-pharma, and, and I probably had a little anti-pharma bend in my, uh, you know, talk today with you. Um, and, and it's mostly because I don't, you know, I'm sure these drugs have helped a lot of people and it has, you know, put their disease off for many years. And, and a lot of people have a lot of success with these drugs. Um, but I don't think any of them statistically um, compare to successful HSCT treatment. Um, in terms of, you know, putting your, yes. And so even if you can't get HSCT, if you're not accepted, if you can't afford it, if you're simply not in a place where you can, where you can leave the country and go get it done, um, there is drug options today, which are a lot better than the drug options of five years ago. Indeed. And, you know, there's news that, that these uh, RNA manufacturers, I can't remember which one it was, but they're working on an MS vaccine as well to be delivered via the same, um, method that the COVID vaccines uh, are, are being delivered. And so there's exciting new technology on the horizon, which I think, you know, everyone alive today with MS should be excited about as well, uh, that, you know, uh, there are some things on the horizon which might make HSCT uh, unnecessary in the future, right? Like, it would be good if we didn't have to have such an aggressive and kind of you know, it's almost barbaric. Like, we're just going to kill your whole immune system. Right. And that'll, you know, take the MS out of your body. But uh, if that's our, if, if that's one of our best solutions today, then, you know, we're, we're grateful to have it. And um, that more and more work is being done on it. And, you know, Dr. Fedorenko's approach to it is different than many other places in terms of the kind of uh, level of chemo that he gives. And his, his formula is, is, is not to completely destroy your immune system because he's found that to be safer. And so that's uh, an evolution that he's had over the last 10 years, right? Whereas he was doing it, I think, slightly differently 10 years ago. And so as time goes on, more and more data, information, uh, changes to these therapies is, is happening. And um, I think that's a great thing for you know, people suffering from MS because you know, the more information we have, the better things are going to develop. And hopefully you know, one day we won't have to worry about severe disability anymore and that there will be some kind of therapies that can completely control the disease from from outset to, you know, the end of life. And that, um, we don't have to worry about, you know, disability again. So I'm, I'm positive, I'm, I'm optimistic. And, and uh, in the meantime, we should all do what we can to keep our bodies in good condition, right? And our minds positive. Absolutely. Thank you for the very powerful reminders of the connections between mind and body and the importance of positivity, finding joy in the interim. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's, it's been the thing that has changed my approach to everything and, and, and it's going to go way beyond dealing with my illness. And, you know, because certainly it's not like, Oh, let's say you, you, you cure your MS, however, which way you do it. Um, 
does that mean that your life has no problems that, you know, you're not going to have difficulties that there aren't going to be things that cause you to shut down or to, to have, you know, really difficult periods. Of course not. You know, the human condition and the human experience exactly. is, is, is a very difficult one, but I feel like that kind of thinking will, will extend and, and it comes back to, to being grateful in some ways that, that, that you have this experience and that it's teaching you, it's giving you a life lesson. And me at 31 years old, I look at people who are my age who haven't had something very difficult to deal with like this. And, you know, whether they can have the same perspective without it is difficult. I certainly wouldn't have. I certainly, before I got diagnosed, had that infinite mindset that everything was always going to be okay and that, you know, take things for granted. I'm not saying everyone does. Some people are, are much more grounded than I was. But uh, for me, I wasn't. And I thought, you know, everything is good and will be good forever. And, uh, you know, I don't have to worry about my health in a major way. And suddenly it changes and it gives you perspective on a lot of other things in life as well. And so I really am grateful in many ways that I went through all of this. And I think it's, it's going to help me in a lot of other areas of life. It's a great perspective to hold on to. Like one thing I didn't talk about was was how much your body goes to total crap sitting in that bed for a month. Yes, the and immobility. I, I was, yeah, I was working out like a maniac before I left. Like, uh, like I, I was I was lifting weights and I was running and I was doing all this kind of high powered working out, but at the cost of like that was my day. I would go lift weights for like forty minutes. I would go for a run and then I was just like on the couch for the rest of the day. Like done. Sleep for two hours and then lay down the other six. That was my day. But I felt. If that's what it takes, I'll get myself in the best possible shape before right. I go to Russia. And then in one month, all of it was like, just, you know, yeah, it right. all went downhill, which is, that's, that's the cost of doing business, right? You're, you're staying in a bed for a month and you can't move and you got yeah. chemo and your right. muscles kind of uh, take a hit. But um, I guess that's one thing that I should have mentioned is, is, is the physical deterioration um, that you experienced for that month in hospital. And, and um, I'm, I regret not using the exercise bands a little bit more, I think it would have helped, but to, to an extent there's not, you know, you can't prevent it. It's going to happen. It's going to be tired and all that stuff. But um, yeah. Yeah. Any other questions? We've gone uh, a long time. I don't know. Anyone's going to listen to this. Uh, well, I'm going to ramble for two hours. I think I'll do it in two parts. Okay. I really appreciate yeah, sure. you sharing your story. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, like I said, uh, it always feels a little e egotistical to talk so much about yourself, but obviously people don't, don't really care about me. They don't know me. They care about my experience and kind of what, what someone has to say about having done HSCT and kind of what symptoms they had and, and how they're feeling now. And, um, um, yeah, you I guess I should know, say but... as the last sound clip, I should say as a last sound clip, because I don't know if I made it explicit for people prior to HSCT, I had kind of numbness, numbness and tingling in my, in my legs and my hands, um, nystagmus in my eyes, the, the extreme tiredness. I, I was starting to get spastic. I didn't quite realize it. Um, I thought it was like other kinds of muscle tightness because it would improve with physical rehab. But I, I started to realize that no amount of rehab I did would really ever get it to go away. And I would say my biggest problem was the, the brain fog and the tiredness. And post HSCT, the energy levels are much better. Uh, I still have numbness and tingling. And in some ways it has gotten worse. And I think that's a effect of the chemo. I don't think that, I don't think that's MS. I think the chemo has been, it's done something to some parts of, of the nerves. Um, but I, I anticipate that that's going to get better. And I think it has been getting better. 
Um, and and the, the 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 kind of beginning of spasticity that I was starting to feel is, is completely gone. And a lot of like problems, I, I was having a lot of um, sciatica and other stuff, uh, tightness in my back, and, and, and a lot of it improved like 90 to, to in some cases, 100% in just a short few months since I've been back. So just, just to make those kind of things explicit, cause we kind of, you know, uh, covered a lot of things. And, um, and so, yeah. Indeed. Those are fantastic recoveries on your part. Oh, uh, if I have, if I have my brain power back, that, that will be more than enough. I can deal with the physical stuff, uh, well enough. It's, it's, the, the lack of brain power and the lack of energy that just is such a difficult thing to accept for such a long time. And so now I'm just trying to think, you know, one step forward each day and, and it's getting better and that's it's motivating me. So, so I'm very happy. I'm looking forward to what's going to happen in the next two months, the next two years and, and all of that kind of stuff. So, so it was nice to also hear a little bit about your experience. And I think having done your podcast and seen kind of where the conversation goes, I think I will listen to some more of them to hear what other people have gone through and, and, and yeah, and hopefully someone gets something out of, out of uh, my story and uh, yeah. I'd say it's been very inspirational and full of helpful reminders, particularly in the context of mindset and positivity, finding joy in those little moments. So thank you, Jarko, for sharing your story. You're welcome. Uh, I wish everyone luck on their journey. Whoever's listened to this, uh, family members, friends, loved ones, uh, MS patients, uh, people who are thinking of HSCT, people who've had it. Uh, you know, we're all in a similar fight. So, you know, just stay strong, keep moving your body how much ever you can. Uh, if it's an inch, if it's an inch, if it's a kilometer, it's a kilometer, just keep going. And uh, I, I wish you all the best. Much love to everybody. And uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, same to you, Jarko. All the best to you in health and wellness. You take good care of yourself. Thanks. All the best. Be sure to visit hsctwarriorspodcast.org, where you can find notes from today's episode, submit ideas or feedback, and connect with resources and the HSCT Warriors Incorporated nonprofit. As always, special thanks to musical genius Billy Allitzhauser for sharing his superpowers to create the soundtrack, edit, and produce the audio to make this podcast possible. You can find us both when you subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find podcasts. It has been amazing to connect with warriors worldwide, and we would love to hear from you about how the podcast has helped your journey with autoimmune disease. Take a moment to connect with us on Instagram or share this episode with someone you know that would enjoy listening. In the meantime, we hope you'll tune in next Wednesday for another episode highlighting another HSCT warrior. Until then, be a snowflake and embrace your superpowers. Be kind, be well. John Stansberry Koenig and the producers disclaim medical influence and responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. If you think you have a medical problem, please contact a licensed physician and take good care.